Good morning. Sounds like the redeemed are still buzzing with the say-so-ness of it all. That's good. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. The title of our message this morning is The Treasure of Pleasure. The Treasure of Pleasure. In the Westminster Catechism, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, up here we have uh, John Piper's edit of that statement, which is, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Jonathan Edwards once said that God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. And so what I want to do is I want to demonstrate two things that I believe are being taught in Psalm 16 regarding God being the supremely valuable treasure, um, infinitely valuable, infinite worth, and at the same time, God being the ultimate source of all pleasure. So the idea is that we bring God glory as our treasure as we find pleasure in him. Does that make sense? If not, we'll unpack it as we go. I'm going to read from Psalm 16, 1 through 11, the whole psalm. This is God's word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and bless you this morning as the supremely valuable treasure. And God, we also praise you that you are the ultimate source of all pleasure. God, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would show us what it means to delight in you, to be satisfied in you, and to allow that satisfaction in you to permeate every area of our lives because we want to show off the glory of Christ. And God, uh, your word is teaching us that we glorify Christ by enjoying him. <laughs> so would you help us to enjoy you uh, even as your word is proclaimed? God, I pray that you would overcome the weakness of the speaker and uh, magnify your name. And as always, God, we pray that the spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to first just lay the foundation for this whole idea of enjoying God. In verse 1 it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. The foundation of enjoying God is, first and foremost, we must have the right God. Um, it's not good enough just to have a vague notion of who God is or just some kind of idea in our minds that this is what I believe God is like, uh, but we have to have the true God, the God of the Bible, the triune God, the Lord. Notice in verse 2, uh, David says, I say to the Lord, in, in most of our translations, that Lord, L-O-R-D, is in all capitals. And that's signifying that behind that word in the original language is the, the name Yahweh, or I am, that I am, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's the unique covenant name of God. So just by virtue of uh, David's using that name, Yahweh, is indicative of a covenant that God made with man, and it's a, um, the idea of pers personal relationship. Um, then secondly, he says, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now where it says L-O-R-D, and it's not in all capitals, behind that is the word Adonai in Hebrew, which means uh, sovereign or king or ruler. Uh, so David here is saying that I'm, I'm saying to Yahweh that you are my sovereign and apart from you I have no good thing. Now oftentimes this, um, this idea of um, uh, believing in God or having God as uh, having a personal relationship with God that tends to be something that we take for granted uh, especially in our country. Uh, everybody just kind of assumes that we're in relationship with God because the, the faulty notion is that we're all God's children and, yeah, God loves us as soon as we come out the womb and I'm a child of God and 
we're all child children of God, and so it's all good. Um, but uh, biblically, there's only one way to become a child of God, and that's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so the foundation of enjoying God has to be starting with the right God, the first commandment. You should have no gods, no other gods before me. And so if we're going to enjoy God, if we're going to delight in him and glorify him through doing that, we have to, um, we have to come to him as he is and not as, he, as we want him to be. Notice that he says, apart from you, I have no good thing. I have no good apart from you. He's recognizing that God is the source of every single ounce of blessedness in his life. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Apart from God, I have no good thing. He's recognizing that even the very good things that he has, the temporal things of this life, are absolutely meaningless apart from how they are connected with God himself. God is the absolute source of all goodness, of all blessedness. Now, part of the problem is that uh, what we tend to do, and we're going to see this more in verse 4, what we tend to do is we tend to take the gifts of God and our sinful tendency is to divorce or cut off the gift from the source. And so we'll rejoice more in what God gives us, uh, and oftentimes either neglect to give him thanks, neglect to give him praise, but we'll just kind of snatch up the gift without actually looking to the giver of the gift. I like this quote by C.J. Mahaney. He says, all gifts from God are intended to direct our attention to God and create fresh affection for God. All gifts from God are intended to direct our attention to God and create fresh affection for God. What we usually do is uh, we do what the, what the ungrateful kid does on Christmas. <laughs> that is, as soon as he gets the gift, he unwraps it, takes delight in it, and then either gives a quick kiss to mommy or daddy or... Maybe not even that, just completely ignores mommy and daddy and runs away to play with the gift. Oftentimes we can be ungrateful in the way that we um, will use the gifts of God, we'll take the gifts of God, we'll accept the gifts of God, uh, but we forget to give praise to God. We don't allow the giving of the gift from God to create fresh affection in our hearts from God or or for God. And when we do that, um, we are... We are not glorifying him because we're not enjoying him as we should. So what what the psalmist is recognizing is that apart from God, like the gifts don't mean anything. Only as much and in so much as they are connected with the giver of the gifts. So now we're going to look at some of the ways that God has ordained for us to enjoy him. Let's look at verse 3. It says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Means number one of enjoying God in this text is enjoying God through his people. 
enjoying God through his people. The people of God are one of the ways that God shows himself to us. Um, the people of God are uh, a means of grace in the lives, in the life of the believer for God to display the riches of his glory. Now, oftentimes we'll have um, a low view of what the church is. Um, how often is it that we hear people talk about Christians? We hear Christians talking about other Christians. Um, starting off sentences like, man, the church. You know, as, as, as if the church was something separate or distinct from, from who we are. Like, if you're born again, if you're in Christ, you are the church. You know, Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, um, you know, on the road to Damascus after he reveals himself, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus completely identifies with his bride that he purchased. Um, but often we will have a very low view of the people of God. And, and when we do complain about other Christians, it actually says more about us than it says about the people that we're complaining about. I want to just mention a few reasons why we should delight in the people of God. One, because God delights in them. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. So, if we want to be imitators of God, how can we dislike something that God himself takes pleasure in? Second reason is because of the relationship of the people of God to God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the people of God are called the children of God. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus refers to the, uh, the people of God as his friends. In John 20, verse 17, he refers to believers as his brothers. And the same thing in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. In Revelation 21, verse 9, the church is called the bride, the bride of Christ. And so we should delight in the people of God because of the ways that the scripture teach us that the people of God are related to God. The people of God are the children of God, the brothers of Jesus, the friends of Jesus, and the bride of Jesus. So how are we going to say that we love the bridegroom, but we can't stand his wife. <laughs> should never be. Another reason why we should uh, delight in the people of God is because of the exalted language that the scriptures use to describe the people of God. The exalted language that the scriptures use to describe the people of God. When you think about what a Christian is, when you think about a believer, um, don't just think like this is the dude that I'm sitting next to who gets on my nerves and is kind of annoying and that kind of thing. But let's replace that with the biblical understanding of who it is that you're sitting next to. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, believers are referred to as a chosen race. A chosen race uniquely and specifically set apart by God from eternity past. The person that you're sitting next to, if they're a believer, is not just, just some old dude, but 
according to that same verse, a royal priesthood. Think about that. You're sitting next to royalty. You're sitting next to a priest. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. A people belonging to God. We need a higher view of the body of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Believers are referred to as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. And even our text here, verse 3. The excellent ones. That word excellent, it could be translated as noble, as wonderful, as magnificent. You hear the, the, the dignity in that term? The excellent ones. It reminds me of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, when, uh, when the little kids are in Narnia and they come across the, that crazy horse-looking thing, What's it called? A fawn? Is that a the fawn, right? Um, and like he's blown away that he's actually encountered a human being. And when you when you look at his response, he's like, "You're a son of Adam." And I remember watching that, and just being like, "Man, like like the just the dignity, the dignity that we have as." God's creatures uniquely placed, like uniquely made in the image of God, but then beyond that, like uniquely being remade into the image of Christ as believers, like sons of Adam. We're, we're connected and joined, we're unified with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and our ultimate destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which means that in so much as redeemed humanity can be like Jesus, that's what we're going to be. And that the process has already started. So, like, it's a, uh, it's just, it's a dignified place. We're talking about a royal priesthood, the bride of Christ. It makes sense that we should delight in other believers. They're the excellent ones. They have the spirit of God, the living God living in them right now as we speak. The person sitting next to you will rule and reign with Jesus forever because they have been purchased with the infinitely precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why we should love other believers is because they love Jesus. <laughs> because they love Jesus. We should love people who love our Lord. Assuming we, if we love him, then we should love people who love him. Amen? I think about that. Man, I love people who love Jesus Christ. I've been traveling the last couple of weeks, and I've had opportunities just to fellowship with and meet with brothers and sisters from all over the country who, like, we don't have anything else in common other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like we can meet for the first time and within like the first 10, 15 minutes, there's just this common bond, this common union. And like, what is that? It's the spirit of God within me who loves Jesus Christ, testifying to the spirit of God in the believer that I'm talking to who also loves Jesus Christ. 
And it's like this mutual enjoyment of God together because, yo, we, like, we love Jesus. I think about the ways that uh, even here at Epiphany, like when we gather outside of the public assembly in, in homes for fellowship, oftentimes I'll look around the room and I'll be like, yo, like the only thing that's bringing us together is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I probably wouldn't be in this room with these people <laughs> if it wasn't for Jesus. And they probably wouldn't want to be around me either <laughs> if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to gather around common interests. Like that's just a natural human thing. People tend to gather around the things that they're interested in. So you can see that with sports. You can see it with games, uh, cooking, different kinds of hobbies. Uh, different message boards online. People are, are coming together because they're, um, they're united by what they're interested in. For us, as believers, we should be united by who we're interested in, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why biblical fellowship should always surround, like, the person of Jesus. So in other words, it's not just like, okay, you happen to be a Christian, I happen to be a Christian, but Jesus never comes up in the conversation and we're just doing natural things all the time. Not, not that there's anything wrong with just coming together and enjoying each other's company. Like, that's, that's dope. But, like, if we want to enjoy God through believers and we want believers to enjoy God in us, like, our fellowship should surround Jesus Christ because he's the one who's bringing us together. Or he should be the one who's bringing us together. The excellent ones. Question, would other believers say that about you? Would other believers say that you are one of the excellent ones in whom is all their delight? Do other believers see the Jesus in you and rejoice in the Jesus who is in you? Does your life, does your fellowship, does your words, like do they convey that you belong to Jesus, you prize Jesus, you love Jesus, and you want to encourage others in Jesus? The excellent ones. Now, we're going to talk about in verse 4, one of the great obstacles to enjoying God. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The great obstacle to enjoying God is idolatry. <laughs> idolatry. The great obstacle to enjoying God. Now usually when we think about idolatry, we, uh, we get this image of people bowing down before blocks of wood. Uh, but biblically, an idol is anything either real or imagined that we give the place in our hearts that rightfully belongs to God alone. It's anything real or imagined that we give the place in our hearts that rightfully belongs to God alone. Now, ironically, usually our idols are in some form the gifts that God gives himself. So what we tend to do is we is we take the gifts that God gives, and instead of allowing that to 
uh, direct our attention to God and create fresh affection for God, what we do is we, we stay there. We stay at the gift. We get fixated on the gift. And then because of our sinful, um, or actually because of the way we're wired to worship, what we'll do is we begin to worship the gift, which is idolatry. Just to throw out some of the common culprits or common idols of our culture, music, sports, sex, food, the praise of people, comfort, money, reputation, games. And when you hear those things, one of the things we should notice is that all of those things have one thing in common, and that is, is that they're all pleasurable. <laughs> like we get some kind of enjoyment out of these things. And so that should give us, like that should give us a clue. Like the gifts from God are enjoyable. It's not wrong to enjoy things. In fact, God has wired us to enjoy so it's not like, like we don't want to become these kind of stoics um, who find like, like no, there, there will be no joy. Like, I'm, I'm loving God, and yes, I'm angry, but I love God, and I'm holy. Like, like nah, like, like God has wired us to find pleasure. We, we should make it our daily ambition to seek as much pleasure in God as possible. <laughs> to seek as much pleasure in God as possible. We can identify what our idols are by a couple of things. One, the things that occupy our thoughts, the things that occupy our time, the things that occupy our conversation, and the things that we spend money on. Like when you think about those things, they, those are usually the things that you'll find in, uh, as candidates for, for idols. We can also identify our idols by how we react if we don't get them or how we respond when they're taken away from us. If, if, God, if, if God takes something away from us and we absolutely fall apart, <laughs> and can't continue, can't go on with life, it's an idol. It's an idol. If, if we will just absolutely go crazy and lose our minds if we don't get that one thing that is not God, it's an idol. It's an idol. The entire history of Israel can be seen as a battle between God and idols for the affections of his people. That's, that's what it's like from the beginning. It's what it really what it's all been all about. Like who are we going to serve? Who are we going to praise? Who are we going to enjoy? Where are, we, where are you finding your pleasure? If it's not God. Then we're guilty of idolatry. Now here's the problem with idols. The problem is that they are poor insufficient and inadequate replacements for God. They're poor substitutes for God. They never satisfy. In fact, they never deliver what they promise 
and their failure to satisfy has an enslaving effect. So if you seek something that is not God, because we we're wired to find our satisfaction in God, if we seek anything that's not him, ultimately, like, it's not going to satisfy us. And then what happens is because it's not satisfying to us, we think we have to get it again and get it again and get it again. And before we know it, we're bound and we're enslaved to this idol, to this insufficient replacement for God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I think it's interesting here that the Apostle Paul equates covetousness with idolatry. Again, it's like, because think about the covetous, like covetousness. What covetousness does is it craves something that we don't have, right? And but here's the problem. Like, covetousness is never actually satisfied. Because, and I, I like the way, um, I'm not sure who said this, but it's a quote that always stays in my mind, which is, if we're not content with what we have, we won't be content with what we get. <laughs> if we're not content with what we have, we won't be content with what we get. Because the nature of covetousness, the nature of idolatry is that it craves more and more and more, but it never ultimately satisfied, satisfies. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says this about money. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. And so in our text, those who run after other gods will multiply their sorrows. Their sorrows will be multiplied. And so, the point here is that all inferior pleasures are meant to point us to the ultimate pleasure who is God. But what idols do is they take our eyes off the ultimate pleasure and put them on the inferior pleasure. And so what that does is it, it blocks our sight, our spiritual sight, our spiritual eyes, through idolatry are blinded from actually seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. And so what does David resolve to do in verse 4? He resolves... Not to participate, to stay far away, to stay so far away that he's not even going to talk about, like, I'm not even going to mention their names on my lips. This idea of uh, blood, offerings of blood, evidently it was, a, it was a common practice of pagan religion at the time of David um, to, to actually drink the blood of the animals and the people that they were sacrificing to pagan gods. And so David is saying, look, like I'm not, I'm not even going to participate in this abominable practice. Even though the other cultures or the culture around me is doing this stuff, like that stuff is going to be far away from me because that stuff blocks 
my ability to see God, to enjoy God, and to glorify God. In verse 5 and 6 of our text, we see the antidote for idolatry, which is being satisfied in God. The antidote for idolatry is being satisfied in God. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So for the psalmist, it, it wasn't enough just simply to say, okay, you know what, um, I'm, I'm just going to stay away from this idol and I'm going to get caught up in, in just not doing the things that I shouldn't do. But it goes beyond just the not doing to the what I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do, he says, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. That is, I'm going to do whatever I can to fix my eyes on God so much that he and he alone will ultimately satisfy me. That he alone will be the one that I find my pleasure in. We, we see a resolve, a holy resolve to find satisfaction and pleasure in God. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. I like this because uh, the psalmist is borrowing from the language of Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, which is referring to uh, after God delivered Israel from Egypt and he began to divide the land up and began to give the different tribes different parts of the land. Notice what it says in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. It says, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you, ha shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So for the Levites, that particular priesthood, they were not to have any land set aside for them. But for them, their portion... Their inheritance was to be God himself. And that's a type, that's a picture of the, the royal priesthood of believers who have ultimately have God himself as our inheritance. So when David says the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places, he's referring back to like the, the land back then was divided into lines. He's saying, look, I may not have any land, I may not have anything, but as long as I have God, I have everything. As long as I have God, look, it doesn't matter what's going on temporally because of what I have and who I have eternally. So even though I don't have any land to call my own, I can still say because I have God that the lines, the dividing lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Like I'm, I'm good. You can take anything away from me, and as long as I have God, I'm okay. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. <laughs> he who has God in everything else, 
He doesn't have anything more than the one who only has God. Because God himself is our infinite, all-satisfying treasure. I have a beautiful inheritance. David is saying that God is satisfying him now. Right now, he's my chosen portion. Right now, he fills my cup. (laughs) And in the future, I have a beautiful inheritance. He satisfied, God satisfies now as well as in the future. In Psalm 107, verse 9, speaking of God, Psalm 107, verse 9, it says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God is infinitely satisfying. Now, in verse 6 and 7, or actually verse 7, we're going to see another means of enjoying God in, in this verse. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. In this verse, we see two more means of enjoying God. One is through prayer. Notice he says, I bless the Lord. I bless the Lord. That is a a prayer of praise to God. And then we see another means, which is the word. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Who gives me counsel. Now, I'm connecting counsel to the word of God because of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the what? The counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So in Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, he's, he's making a distinction between the counsel of the wicked and the law of the Lord or the word of God. So David here is saying, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, referring to the word. I think also implied because of um, the next, the next half of the verse is this idea of meditating on God. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Now, oftentimes what we do is we fall to one extreme or the other. Usually, um, we're either people who read, 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 but don't really pray a lot. Um, and Or we're people who pray, 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 but, but we don't really read that much. And there's error on both extremes, right? If, if all we do is read, but we don't pray, then we wind up in danger of being cold, of just storing up head knowledge, being dead, not really having intimacy and fire, genuine fire for the Lord, even though we know his truth intellectually. But then on the other extreme, if all we do is pray, but it's not informed by the word of God, then our prayer will be shallow. It'll probably be unbiblical and and not have, um, it won't be informed by the truth of who God is. And so that doesn't honor God either. What we want to do and what we want to be and the way that uh, God has set it up as a means for enjoying him 
is through prayerfully meditating on the Word of God as a lifestyle. Prayerfully meditating on the Word of God as a lifestyle. He says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. It's not, it's not just that uh, David is going off of uh, just his own uh, notions of who God is that's not informed, but no. His heart instructing him is informed by prayerfully submitting to God and God's word. In the night also, my heart instructs me. If we want to be a people who enjoy God, we need to be a people who meditate on God. Meditate on God. This dude was on fire for the Lord. Look, God is his last thought before he goes to sleep at night. He's so, he's so uh, entranced and enthralled by God that the, the assumption is that all day he's been communing with God. And then before he goes to sleep, the very last thing he wants to do is get it in with the Lord. But then we know from Psalm verse 5-3 that God was also the first thing on his mind in the morning also. Psalm, verse five, verse, Psalm chapter 5 verse 3 says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. First, last thing at night, first thing in the morning. Like this is mad God-centered. Now some people will say, well, that, that's impossible. It's impossible to, to live like that. I don't think so. I think it's not impossible. And the reason why it's not, and it wasn't impossible for David, is because he enjoyed God. Like we're, we're able to devote mad amounts of time to the stuff that we enjoy. Like I, when, I, when I think about <laughs> how I was when I was in the world, like, there's all kinds of stuff that I did that wasn't God that I did the last thing before I went to sleep and was the first thing I did when I got up in the morning. And it's because I liked it. Like, if you like something, then you're going you're gonna to be captivated by it. What does the time, the amount of time that we spend in the Word and in prayer, like, what does that say about our affections for God? What does it say about how much we value God? Verse 8. We're going to begin to look at the, the benefits of enjoying God. Verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me. That word always in verse 8, it literally can be translated as equally. I've set the Lord equally before me. And the idea here is that it's a, there's a consistency about God being set before him. Like it's not, it's not flaky. It's not flighty. It doesn't, doesn't depend on circumstances. So in other words, I've set the Lord before me no matter what my state is in life. So I've set them before me when things are going well. I've set them before me when things are not going well. I've set them before me on Sundays, and I've set them before me on Monday through Saturday. Like, like there's, an, there's an equality about God being set before the psalmist. Not just 
when it's convenient or only when people are watching, but I have always equally set the Lord before me. Now, here's where um, it, it starts to get very interesting. Verses 8 through 11 are actually quoted in the New Testament. And what we learn in this psalm is that this psalm is actually an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin to bring it in, like we need to see the Lord Jesus Christ in these verses. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 20 to verse 32. Acts 2, 20, 22, starting at verse 22. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he quotes our passage, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You, make known, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's amazing. It's amazing to think that this psalm, this, like David is writing this a thousand years before Jesus Christ ever comes. A thousand years before Jesus we have this prophecy about his death and his resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ in this psalm is actually contemplating his death and his resurrection a thousand years before the event. First Peter chapter 1 verse, 12, uh, verse 10 to 12. This is what's happening, like a New Testament commentary on what's happening in, psalm, in, in passages like Psalm 16. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So we learn here that like David, when he was writing Psalm 16, was not actually writing about himself per se, but was actually by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who was in him a thousand years before writing concerning Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in him. So as we think about Jesus, like seeing this like through the lens of Jesus, uh, seeing verse 8 and 9 through Jesus, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. That should take us right to the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus, looking ahead to his death and to his resurrection. And as a human being, even though Jesus was perfectly God, in his humility, in his humiliation, being perfectly man, he had an absolute dependence upon God as he saw his upcoming death. And he was able in verse 9 to say that, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Think about this. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, laying down his life for the sins of the world. Jesus, about to be crowned with thorns, about to be spit on, about to be mocked, about to receive the Roman execution, not for his sins, because he was sinless, but for the sins of his people, about to be nailed to a cross, about to bear the wrath of a holy God, and yet he's able to say, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. How's he able to do that? A couple of reasons. One, for the joy that was set before him. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord is quoted as saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus was looking ahead to this time that we see about in verse 11. He's looking ahead to the time when all of redeemed humanity is gathered around the throne of God and of the Lamb and are worshiping the Lamb of God who was slain for their sins and purchased them with his blood. And th think about the imagery of Hebrews 2 verse 12. He, Jesus says that he, Jesus, is going to declare the praise of God in the midst of his brothers in the congregation. That teaches us that in heaven... Jesus is going to be our worship leader. <laughs> Jesus is going to be leading worship. He's going to be leading us in song and in praise to God. And it was the joy that he had looking ahead to God being glorified as this redeemed throng of cats who don't deserve it, who deserve hell, are gathered around the throne of God and eternally 
enjoying God. In verse 10 it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew term of meaning the abode of the dead or the grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. We know that the Holy One is Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 22, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus Christ, the very first one resurrected from the dead, and all who are in Christ, all who have trusted in Christ and repented of their sins, will follow him through his death into his resurrection into glory. Verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's just stand back and wonder. Let's stand, let's stand in awe of Jesus talking to his Father right now. The Son says to the Father, Father, you've made known to me the path of life. Father, in your presence, there is fullness, complete, infinite abundance of joy. Father, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus Christ is not against pleasure. He's all about pleasure finding pleasure in God. Nobody enjoys God more than God himself. God enjoys God. We talked about the Westminster question. What's the chief end of man? To, to, uh, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's also the chief end of God. The chief end of God is to glorify God by enjoying God forever. And what the mystery of the gospel is that we get swept up into this enjoyment of God that God has had within himself throughout all eternity. Think about this, and this is something that boggles my mind. There's a connection between understanding and delight. Understanding and delight. That is, the more you understand something, the greater your capacity to delight in that thing. So, for example, the person who understands jazz music, they can hear some Coltrane, and it will do something for them that the untrained ear, it won't, like for me, I, my, my ear is untrained. So I've been around jazz musicians who are listening to a crazy piece of jazz, and they're like, yo, did you hear what he just said? Rewind that, rewind that. And I'm like, 
okay. I, I heard some horns and it was cool, but like I, I didn't hear with the same ears that they heard with. That's because they had a greater understanding of what they were listening to. And so that greater understanding increased their ability to delight in that thing. First, apply that to God. The scriptures in Psalm 147 verse 5 says that God has infinite understanding. God's understanding is absolutely infinite. So what does that say about God's ability to delight in himself? God has an infinite delight in himself because of his infinite understanding. So that gives us some insight into why the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because the father completely understands the son and everything about the son is absolutely lovely and enjoyable. And so the father's delight in the son is absolutely infinite. The same thing goes for the son. The son, because he is God, he knows the father absolutely perfectly. He has perfect understanding. And for that reason, his delight in the father is infinite. Well, think about how that applies for us. Jesus, in his mercy, is going to give us a glorified body. He's going to give us He's going to remove all sin. Everything that is hindering us from enjoying God now is going to be removed so that we will be able to perfectly, without error, learn about God, enjoy God, delight in God for all eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mm, the pleasures of God. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God be pleased to do this now in our lives. We won't get the fullness of it, but what we should do now is labor to be satisfied in God. I want to just give you one verse as to a clue, because I don't have time, but I want to... I don't have time, time to unpack, but Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 14, we want to get practical, right? A practical way that we can pursue being satisfied in God. We've already seen the people of God as a means of enjoyment. We've seen prayer as a means of enjoyment, the word and meditation as a means of enjoyment. But none of these things are possible apart from faith and embracing the promise of God by faith. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 14, and, and through Christ and through the new covenant, we can embrace this promise. It says, I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Let us pray that God would satisfy us with his goodness. Let us believe this promise by faith. Another verse is Psalm 90, verse 14. Same idea. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Praying that to God and believing that by faith is one of the ways that God can work up within us being satisfied in him.
As I close, I want you to listen to the words of this hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And I think it's a beautiful, poetic way to end our time. It says, O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean's fullness, his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your son. God, we thank you that he is infinitely delighted in you, and you are infinitely delighted in him. And God, we thank you that you have not kept your delight and enjoyment of yourself to yourself, but in your grace and in your mercy, you have given us, you've welcomed us into your delight and your enjoyment. God, we pray that you would forgive us for our idolatry, forgive us for being so easily satisfied by inferior things. God, would you help us so that the gifts from you would work fresh affection in our hearts towards you? And would you help us to be a people who enjoy the saints, a people who enjoy prayer, meditation, and study of your word, not as an end of themselves, but as a way of enjoying you? And God, I pray that anyone in here who does not know you, God, that you would open their eyes to behold the beauty of Christ and that they would see him as infinitely satisfying and that you would do that for us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.